Hey everybody, it's Eric Torenberg, co-founder, partner of Village Global, a network-driven venture firm. And this is Venture Stories, a podcast covering topics relating to tech and business with world-leading experts. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of Venture Stories by Village Global. I'm here today with a very special guest, Michael Mayer, co-founder of Bottomless. Michael, welcome to the podcast. Hey, Eric. What's up? And, and another reason why you are on the podcast, uh, or perhaps the main reason, is because you are also the owner of, uh, or you also run a couple pseudonymous uh, Twitter accounts that are very popular. And I'm here today to talk about, among other things, identity, reputation, social capital, Twitter. And so first, well, why don't you just give a brief introduction of yourself, what it is Bottomless does, and how you came to start and run these Twitter accounts. Right. So Bottomless is automatically restocking household supplies using smart sensors. We give people the sensors for free right now. It's a scale um, that we give to people. They leave their coffee on top of it, and then we're just able to automatically send them new coffees at the perfect time. So how I, how I came to start writing pseudonymously was just, it, it was a creative outlet for my thoughts. If you come up with something that you think is interesting, it's actually quite helpful to put it out into the world. Um, it makes you feel as if you've actually done something with it and you can get it off your mind. So it's mostly just a personal creative outlet. And, and did it start resonating from day one or, or when did you know you were onto something? So people assume that, that some of my accounts got bootstrapped by people actually knowing who I was. And, and that was not the case. I really just started putting stuff out. I had zero followers. It took me a while to get to 100 on, on my main account. And then it just compounded from there, you know, because followers are really a form of capital. Followers can produce more followers. So if you're growing, you're following at a some consistent percent, you'll, you'll get somewhere eventually. And then you can use your first account to bootstrap other accounts. Did you change what you were tweeting about over time? Or in response to the increased follower account? Or, or just, or was, has it always been sort of the same vibe and ethos? I, I guess the content has changed based on my interests <laughs> over time. I, uh, I, I would like to say that I, that I haven't changed based on audience feedback, but I think that that's false. I'm not a real artist or anything. Um, much closer to a performer where you, know, you see what people uh, like over time and it sort of trains you whether or not you intended to train you or not. So yeah, I would say we've gotten closer to fortune cookie tweets over time. <laughs> the, the great uh, Eugene Wood quote, and also Naval had one recently about would you say that the, a great performer knows never to look at the audience? Oh, yeah. I would say that an artist iterates based on their own feedback and a performer iterates based on the feedback of their audience. And I would say I'm somewhere in between the two. I try to not look, but I think that's actually possible. I think there's very few pure artists. Right. To what do you credit your ability to come up with, with, with tweets that do well? I try to have a unique information diet. I have cut out most what I would consider junk information. And, and so I think I just have a lot of interesting content that, that goes into my mind. I don't think I'm some sort of special algorithm that I can um, come up with thoughts that are so much better than anyone else's. And you, you talked about this on the Invest Like the Best podcast that you were sort of uh, in between, you know, in the shower, in between, you know, in between moments you were thinking about whether – you know, your favorite sports team should trade this player or hire this coach and that you wanted to change sort of, you know, what your brain was consuming. And that sort of describes, I mean, a lot of people would like to change um, what what they're consuming or or can relate to that, but aren't necessarily coming up with, uh, you know, Twitter accounts that, you know, are synonymous (laughs) and go viral. 
what do you credit within your information diet? Like for people who, who are already there where they want to, you know, to take in a unique information diet, what would you advise them? I think Twitter itself is underrated. You know, people are always trying to consume quality information based purely on whether that information has a reputation for smart people consuming that information. I think curating really good Twitter feeds is actually a great way to get good quality, unique information. And I would say that just ruthlessly pruning your, your Twitter feed and treating it like a garden, most of the accounts that you follow are going to turn out to be weeds in the long run. You know, anytime you read something and you think, this is not what I want to be like the, the premises on top of which I build my thoughts, then you should probably unfollow. Right. So yeah, let's talk about how, how to be good at Twitter. For, first, from the, <laughs> from the reading capacity, I, I've made the mistake of following too many people who I'm friends with, and now I can't unfollow them. I can maybe mute them, um, but, uh, but I, can't, I, I can't even read Twitter. I, I guess I get the daily, you know, I look at Nuzzle and I get sort of daily email but it, it's, just, it's just too much. What other mistakes do people do on the following element? And I, I see your, your main, you know, your uh, account with your real identity, you only follow five people. So how, <laughs> how do you consume Twitter and how do you recommend others do too who are burdened by the real identity? <laughs> I would say first and foremost, Twitter is not a social network. Twitter is a way of uh, building a unique information feed. I, I think the approach that most people take of just going on and following maybe in your crowd VCs that they know is, is a good way to make a, a first crack at building a feed that's relevant for you. Uh, I think the problem is most people don't take steps beyond that. So it's sort of an iterative process. You follow people, um, you, you find who they frequently retweet that you like, and then you follow them and you sort of ditch the original people. <laughs> How about on the, on the writing Twitter itself? When you uh, have a thought in the shower do you go out and tweet it right away and do more tweet, you know, do the more you tweet, the more, like the more thoughts you'll generate. How do you think about producing as a Twitter user? What would you advise? I've noticed that the best tweets tend to feel like an epiphany. You know, a lot of times you have a thought and you think maybe this thought is interesting. It, not until you've sort of struck a nerve with yourself. Um, do you know that you should um, actually tweet it out into the world? I think a mistake people make is they care a little bit too much about everything that they publish being absolutely correct. I think that's a that's maybe not the correct bar because you know who are you and I to say if something is correct and Twitter's short format sort of precludes people actually making full fledged arguments. You're putting out premises for other people to think about whether they're true or false and to use as the building blocks for their thought rather than actually trying to come out with the truth. Yeah, I love that metaphor. Sort of tweets as building blocks for other people to to pursue, uh, to end to build upon ideas and challenge ideas and explore all sides of ideas. And I wish, I wish more people used Twitter in that way. Yeah, I think it, it has something to do with the fact that people are evaluated their whole lives on whether or not what they say is true or false and not whether they say is interesting. You know, you can, you can get a 4.0 in high school and college without coming up with a unique idea. But when you get into the real world, what's valuable is coming up with something that is plausible um, that nobody else has thought of before, right? And that just doesn't exist in the educational context because if it's plausible but it doesn't exist before, how is anybody going to actually, actually teach you that and how are you supposed to be evaluated on that, right? So I feel like people's thought processes are very much bent towards what is possible to grade, what is possible to evaluate as right or wrong. And people never develop this ability to think of things that are maybe true and, and maybe not true, but if true, 
would change the world. Do you think people should pursue pseudonymous identities on Twitter as a way to practice having new ideas? Absolutely. I feel like a lot of the stuff that I tweet, I would probably not tweet if it was Michael, uh, co-founder of Bottomless, saying this. I think identity is something of a chain around your neck when it comes to publishing online. First of all, just because of the way people interpret it, when I started my Twitter account, I was working as a dishwasher <laughs> and, and not attaching my identity to that actually, actually was almost tactical. But I continued to keep it that way because, you know, people might over-index on my knowledge about startups and still under-index on my knowledge about the rest of the world based on who I am in real life. How does that make you think about identity? Like, do, should, like I asked in the context of to practice getting, getting you know, new ideas without being burdened. But do you think in general, you think Twitter would be a better place or the world would be a better place if, if people were all tweeting for pseudonymous identities? Or how do you sort of think about identity and you know, pseudonymity uh, on the internet? You know, I think the real world social capital that people build up is valuable. If you look at Paul Graham and his Twitter account, he has a certain amount of authority. And it is impactful that he's saying things because he is Paul Graham. And I don't think that the world would be a better place if everybody was pseudonymous. On the other hand, maybe even Paul Graham would be able to say much more interesting things if he had pseudonymous accounts. So I think there's a place for both. There's a place for leveraging your real world social capital, but then there's also a place for um, ditching the social capital and letting ideas speak for themselves. Do you remember the uh, uh, Paul Graham's wife, Jessica's um, post, The Sound of Silence? Her post, The Sound of Silence, she talked about how basically once you achieve a certain le- level, it becomes too costly to say what you really think. And thus people who, you know, who achieve a certain audience just hide, hide or don't, don't say what they're really thinking. The world loses out as a result. And, you know, the examples being Mark Andreessen, Balaji, others who sort of went offline. Yeah, so there is a place for people like Mark Andreessen to actually publish under their real name, I think, because we can all weigh their experience um, and actually know that they're an authority on these topics. But, but there is also a place for them to publish pseudonymously um, to be able to experiment with ideas as well. People like Mark Andreessen who don't publish online anymore are complicit um, in the problems of online speech. I think by shying away from publishing rather than defending themselves, they perpetuate the problem. And if it were up to me, I I would probably appeal to those people to publish and and say what they really think. And from a selfish perspective, it doesn't make sense for them to publish. Um, But once they get to the position where they start thinking about the better good for the world, I think it's a bit of a shame that they they hide from from the realities. People who are perhaps uh, multimillionaires or billionaires should publish and they should stand up to the mobs um, because if they don't do it, who will? I'm curious how you've seen sort of Twitter evolve since, since your time on or, or people tweeting evolve. And I'm, I'm curious, like what are role models that people should, should look to? So just like a couple of historical you know, Twitter moments. I, I think Andreessen is known for inventing the tweet storm. Uh, I feel like Naval has changed the game in some way in terms of pushing the barriers, certainly within tech and VC of what, what people can, can talk about. What are other areas that you think were, you've seen Twitter change and who are some people on Twitter that you think uh, people should admire or seek to emulate as a, as a Twitter thinker? I think Naval has definitely changed the game. He's sort of bent the, the Twitter universe around himself by engaging with people on an ideas basis rather than an identity basis. And I think that's fairly revolutionary just by doing that. He promotes quite a few pseudonymous accounts 
and I don't think because he's doing it charitably. I think because he has internalized his own philosophy on identity and understands that the content itself is what matters. So I would like to see more of the Twitter universe emulate Naval. And what does it look like for people to emulate him? Are, are they gearing more towards fortune cookiness, or is that a false premise, or what does it look like? You know, the fortune cookie line is is pithy um, and sarcastic. And so I, I was joking about that earlier, but I actually don't like it very much because I think it's easy to dismiss people um, calling their content fortune cookie content. But the art of a good tweet is to compress knowledge in such a way that it is revealing quite a bit to people um, in the least amount of uh, reading effort. You know, that's the beauty of technology itself, right? Um, efficiency, doing more with less. And Twitter is sort of a technology meant for doing more with less with the written word. Or these sort of fortune cookie tweets are actually Twitter in, in its purest form. In terms of what Naval has done, I think it's less about the type of tweets that he promotes, and it's more about the type of content um, and content creators that, that he promotes. Uh, so I, I would like to see more people... Uh, evaluate Twitter based on the content rather than the individuals. I think there's quite a few very mundane accounts that are very large based purely on who the individual is in the real world. And I think people should unfollow those accounts and follow more interesting accounts and their lives will be better. And it is funny, I mean, because Naval has been very successful in the tech world, but if, if you didn't know who he was and you were just reading his tweets, you know, you might not, you know, distinguish him between your anonymous accounts or, or, or pseudonymous accounts. Like, He's tweeting about different things. Yeah, he's tweeting about different things almost as a consequence of his identity list philosophy. And um, he attracts many other accounts and promotes many interesting thinkers that the world without him would never have seen. And, and so I think he's actually doing something quite impactful uh, with his Twitter account that maybe some people don't realize because they dismiss the platform because of some idea of it being too pithy. Let's let's also talk about more things that people who are good at Twitter do and don't do. And don't do, you know, we discuss like talking about news or talking about sports or talking about politics or, or sort of self promotion or, or things that will be outdated. What, what are other things that don't do camp? I think in general, seeing your Twitter account as a conduit of your personal thoughts and personal opinions is wrong. I think you should see it as a channel for other people to consume content and everything follows from that. You should take your audience seriously and take their time seriously as well. You know, if you have 50,000 followers blasting out even a small snippet of text to all those 50,000 people is something of a responsibility. And I think people should consider their audience a lot more than they do um, and consider themselves a little bit less. How do you think about like, even for yourself, maybe just be this premise, like different genres of tweets. Like for me, I, I should be more, more sort of discerning, I guess, but I'm, I'm more impulsive in the sense of I have a question, I'll tweet it, or I have a you know thing I'm working through in my head, I'll tweet it to get feedback. Or, you know, sometimes there'll be, there'll be something where I've really thought through and I'm like, this is not a declaration, but just an idea I want to put out. How, how do you think about different genres of, of, of tweets for you? I don't really think in terms of genres. I think my followers have a feed it, is this tweet going to be better than their medium tweet or not? And if I have high confidence that it's going to be better than their medium tweet, then I tweet it. So 
it all follows, follows from taking your audience seriously as real individuals who are living their real life and trying to add value to their life. Yeah. How do you think about, like, do you wish Twitter was ephemeral? Or how do you think about that? No, I wish Twitter were less ephemeral. I, I think ephemerality contributes quite a bit to the lack of depth on Twitter because you are incentivized to publish things that people only want to see once. You can imagine there's a lot of things that people might want to see multiple times but are going to be uh, less exciting in a one-off fashion. And, and so you skew content towards entertainment rather than skewing towards knowledge. So if, if Twitter were less ephemeral, you would see more facts and more um, useful information and less jokes and, and entertaining content. Something you've thought about much about is, is social capital. Can you spell out how you define social capital, how social capital is built, and what people may not understand about it? Yeah, so capital is basically anything that's durable over time um, and that can create more of itself. Um, so Twitter followers are, are definitely a form of capital because each Twitter follower is liable to create a new one by retweeting you. That's a form of social capital, and social capital can definitely be transferred from one place to another. For instance, you know, I have quite a few anonymous Twitter accounts, and I'm transferring the social capital from those into the real world right now by being on your podcast. Or, for example, there's quite a few famous people that have Twitter, tons of Twitter followers, um, and they're transferring their real-world social capital into, um, into Twitter itself. There's the, uh, this idea that you know, people build up their following, but when they build up their following, they become more conservative. You know, the, the, the generous uh, take on the fortune cookie argument. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, whereas sometimes it's the most contrarian ideas that should be getting the audience that they have. And so there's a sort of tension of if you, if you are someone like this and you want to lend your audience to, uh, to this idea without staking your name, you know, suffering the costs to it, is there a way that that can happen? There's benefits to be, uh, being able to publish contrarian ideas under a different identity. And I know there's a lot of people that think they're publishing contrarian ideas, but very few ideas that you actually hear are really contrarian. The very best ideas to be spread are ones that feel contrarian, um, but actually aren't because then they're popular enough to, to spread. The real contrarian ideas get no retweets and everybody replies that this is ridiculous or dumb or offensive, right? <laughs> that, that, does that happen to you in your account? Absolutely. Yeah. I definitely will tweet things that I feel like are uh, too contrarian. Sometimes I make a point to tweet things that I know are contrarian. You can be sure that most of the stuff that you see and feel contrarian is not truly contrarian because there's a reason why you're hearing about it because uh, it was viral enough to spread whether through word of mouth or on Twitter or whatever it may be. Yeah. Going back to social capital, how do you think about transferring social capital to financial capital. That's a, that's a, you know, a thing that a lot of people uh, try to do. Social capital and financial capital are, are easily transferable between each other. You know, going to Stanford is social capital and it automatically transfers into real capital when you go out into the job market. I'm actually trying to think of any examples of social capital that cannot be transferred into financial capital and I'm having a little bit of trouble. Well, there's, there's, there's this idea that some people aren't respected by those who matter but are known by those who don't and so sort of have this long tail, that, you know, to be crude a little bit, have this long tail of, of followers but because they're not respected by the insiders, don't have um, you know, lucrative opportunities, as opportunities as lucrative as people who are respected by insiders but unknown elsewhere. Yeah, so maybe their social capital is not actually very valuable. Right, and so social capital isn't measured by the amount of followers, but by the quality of followers. Yeah, the, how impactful those followers are, yeah. 
yeah, how impactful and also how engaged or how loyal or, or how high they, they respect them. I mean, because some people have followers are more in the sort of, in the sort of spectacle sense. I'm not to say that engagement is the only measure of sort of respect, but if, if people have you know, millions of followers and don't get much engagement on their, on their tweets, I don't know. There's something to be said about that, right? Yeah, that's a, that's a classic mistake that people make. You, you can tweet and not lose any followers, but lose mindshare. I've noticed this myself. I automatically skip over uh, certain accounts that I, that I follow without even realizing it. If you water down your signal to noise ratio, people will subconsciously understand that there's not a lot of information value. People are information junkies. They're looking for surprise or information or entertainment. And maybe all of those three things are the same. And if they start to understand at some level that your content is not information rich, they might not unfollow you, but they've unfollowed you in spirit because they scan, they scan right past your messages. I want a teacher that says unfollowed you in spirit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and, and and I think if if anyone out there has a lot of followers but they don't get a lot of engagement, the best thing to do would be to leave Twitter for a couple weeks and then come back. They'll be surprised to see your avatar again. Yeah, atone for your sins. Yeah. How <laughs> <laughs> do you think about I mean, there's this concept that uh, as it relates to reputation that maybe it should be segmented more like. You know, Mark Andreessen would have a high reputation as it relates to, you know, macroeconomics or technology, but maybe a low reputation as it relates to, I don't know, basket weaving or something. Has, <laughs> or, or, or someone who's unknown, but an expert in some you know, very particular you know, thing might, might have a high reputation as it relates to that. But right now, versus Twitter, we sort of have just this monolithic reputation that is follower count. How do you think about that? I think the signals that somebody has credibility in a certain domain are relatively rare and immature. And so therefore we over-index on them. You know, you have a degree in computer science, for instance, people might assume you know more about computers than you do. For instance, I have a degree in economics. You know, my understanding of economics is probably better than the average person, but I am by no means a, I think people have a hard time because the information that's available about your knowledge about a specific subject um, is pretty poor. Um, I can't look up a profile for Eric Tornberg and see that you're at like a, you know, second year proficiency in uh, rapping and uh, a fifth year proficiency in uh, investing and like a one year proficiency in basket weaving, for instance. It's very, uh, it's not granular enough. Uh, I'm eighth year proficiency in rapping. I'll have you. Okay. Okay. (laughs) But I I wonder if there will be a world in which we are, uh, we do get that information. Like in a few years from now, how might Twitter or the way in which we use something like Twitter be different? How do you expect that to evolve? I think almost every major technological revolution can be explained by making something important legible. Um, So people's credibility in certain domains is certainly important. And so if you can make that legible, you could probably change um, the social world. I'm not sure how monetizable that might be, um, but you can change the world in some way. Um, Likewise, with my company, Bottomless, uh, we, we make your stock levels of items in your house legible, which is going to change the world of reordering. Or Uber made your location legible, which changed the world of, tr- of transportation. Um, and, and you can just go on. So in the social realm, definitely credibility is something that could be made more legible. There's a whole lot of things that are non-legible. For instance, you look at somebody's LinkedIn, um, it's very crass and underdeveloped. You really don't know much about the people um, by looking at that um, so I think we're very much in the early stages of the social internet. 
in a lot of ways. Credibility is one. What are other things that are non-legible? Kindness. <laughs> you know, uh, whenever I'm thinking about working with somebody, I look up their LinkedIn, you know, there's some evidence of credibility in some domain, but are you a kind person? Are you somebody I'm going to want to spend a lot of time with? Um, are you generally good to others around you? And right now that's, that's completely illegible. You can ask references, but they're going to lie. And so it's almost like, you know, the Black Mirror episode where people can rate each other. I almost think that something like that will come to pass um, and it will probably make the world a better place, not a worse place. Right. How's that for a contrarian idea? <laughs> no, I yell for people. Uh, yell for relationships and work. Like, yeah, it's, it's going to exist. And it's a little bit of, it, part of it could, could, could be dystopian, but uh, you'll just have to hope that the net positives outweigh the, the negatives. Yeah, for people to participate, it's going to have to be in a way that makes the world a better place. We're lucky to not live in a totalitarian society. Um, so any new thing is going to have to get people opting in. That doesn't mean every new thing is better for the world, but on net, most new things have to be better for the world because nobody can really be coerced to use them. So I think it will be better. Yeah. You said you graduated a degree of economics. Is college a sham? Would you, would you do it again if you were 18 today? What, what are your thoughts on traditional education and, and how it should evolve? Well, it's a pretty good way to give credibility to somebody in a narrow way. Um, I think the main benefit of college is showing that you can stick to something for four years straight. A lot of people just cannot do so I think we're in this period where it's become popular to, to say that college is worthless. And, and I think it's not um, totally worthless. I, I think it's something that has emerged um, out of the world and has existed for a very long period of time. So I don't think it will be replaced wholesale. It's telling that every university has a library. Um, it's sort of an antiquated information technology you needed to centralize the information in one place because information could only travel at the speed of shipping a book somewhere. So you centralize information in one place so that information can travel much faster in that small geographical zone that is the university campus. So universities as an information technology are completely outdated, and but they are not outdated as a social signaling mechanism. So I think the best way to play universities, if I was 18 again, I would try to get into the best university that I possibly could, um, and then I would not go to class. Right. And then you uh, uh, would you pursue something else, perhaps something like bottomless, that would show that you could stick to something for a long period of time? I think you have to, you have to go the full four years, but don't take it seriously as an educational opportunity. And, and, you know, teach yourself as much as you can about the world um, in other ways. Uh, actually, getting through college doesn't take that much time for, for a reasonably intelligent person um, because it's almost impossible to fail out. I'm pretty sure Harvard has something like a 97 or 98% graduation rate, um, which is telling, they, they basically tell the world that, hey, uh, this has nothing to do with teaching anything. This has everything to do with just getting admitted. I think you need to get in. You need to spend four years teaching yourself about the world while doing the bare minimum. And this seems, you know, your, your approach seems endlessly practical, but if, if you were to zoom out and could wave a wand and change anything about how the sort of education and credentialing world works, what, what would it look like in a utopian society? I think the need for classes exists because you need a batch process students. Um, but in the modern world, uh, you can be taught uh, anything at your own pace uh, because the information technology does not have to live inside the professor's head. Um, a utopian society that I built would have learning at your own pace built in, along with some ability to prove 
follow through so that that social capital can be built. I know a lot of people are cynical about the social capital, but I actually think it's incredibly important to signal to the world who can stick to things and who can't because opportunities are scarce. Um, and you want to allocate those opportunities to the right place. Now, I think the current admissions process for, for universities is perhaps a bit broken, not because it's corrupt or anything, but because uh, graduating from high school is is not actually hard and getting a 4.0 in high school is not actually hard. So I think there needs to be better mechanisms for, for figuring out where those precious spots should be allocated. It, it is interesting. I mean, uh, someone asked me yesterday, what, what's the better version of a cloud score? I, I don't know if you remember the cloud score. They, they, you know, do you remember cloud score? Yeah. 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 yeah they sort of, you know, aggregated a score across, you know, social media channels, your followers, but you can you can, you know, different followers are weighted differently. Uh, you know, you're trying to get quality score based on, you know, intelligence, kindness, follow through, reliability, you know, uh, savviness, what sociability. If you were designing a, a clout competitor and trying to sort of assess social capital, what might that look like? You, you would have to make something where the signal um, is hard to game. You know, there, there's too much incentive for scratching each other's backs like you might see on LinkedIn recommendations, for instance. You know, it, it's you pursuing bottomless is interesting to me because it doesn't seem to directly or, or, or take advantage of your of your skills and not skills your your asset that you've built relative to something like, of course, you mentioned earlier, half jokingly, but seriously, being, being a venture capitalist or or pursuing a startup idea that is in the vein like a space repetition social network or or, or cloud score, you know, a social capital measure or something that you sort of leverages your unique asset. Uh, that is your your accounts and your ability to to create them at scale. How would you respond respond back to that? Obviously, you know your account you've built uh, you know relationships with investors and other influential people who could help uh, bottomless. But h- how do you think about that? Yeah, I think in terms of starting bottomless, I didn't really spend a lot of time thinking about uh, what would be easy for me to start or would I have some unique advantage in starting? Um, I think I thought about what was a layer that was missing in the world that'll be hugely important and hugely valuable. Um, I think at any given time, there's probably five or 10 huge opportunities that somebody can address. And I think bottomless is one of those. And and I think perhaps other opportunities that maybe would be more related to my life or my background might be less impactful. And bottomless is one of those things that um, nobody else is doing. And when you see something that you think needs to be done um, that nobody else is doing, it's sort of a siren, siren song. So spell it out a little bit. What was the opportunity you, you came across with Bottomless and when was your sort of aha moment that, wow, this, this is what I should spend the next five to 10 years of my life on, if not more? Yeah, so every household in, in the world has a problem uh, in restocking items in their house, right? And I think people are invisible to the problem because they're just so used to it. That's how they grew up. Their parents were restocking items manually. Um, they you know, have had to restock items manually for their entire existence as an adult. So it's a problem that people are blind to. And I sort of realized this is an information problem, right? Um, If I get the same dish detergent, the the problem is not, do I want this? You know, the problem is, when should it be shipped to me? And the information that's living in everyone's head is how much they have and how fast they're going through it. Um, And they're having to store that information in their head and manage it in their head and then manually trigger the same purchase over and over again. So Whenever you see an information problem in the world, um, it can probably be solved with information technology if you get the right information and process it in the right way. So we sort of 
worked from that core principle and realized that if we had sensors in people's houses that knew how much they were going through it and how fast they were going through it, you could automate that, um, that process that every household in America is running constantly. And then, you know, we picked one vertical that we thought was the best place to start, um, which was coffee for some obvious reasons. Um, and then we decided the best sensor is probably a weight sensor because it's really simple and you can make them cheap enough that you can give them away for free. So basically we're making a smart scale that you put your coffee on top of that automatically reorders it for you, which when people hear feels like a trivial idea. Um, but in reality, it's, it's a very big idea that I think is going to change the world. I, I am almost 100% sure that someday people are going to have cheap battery-powered sensors in their house that's going to reorder all their consumables for them. Uh, one thing I know you think also a lot about is is habits. And, and you talk about how improving your habits is, has, has affected your life. Can you, can you talk about what were the highest leverage uh, habits you, you, you pursued and you recommend others to do too? It's much easier to remove bad habits than to add good habits. There's a lot of things that are a drag on your life, drinking excessively, smoking excessively, that when you remove those, changing other habits like procrastination becomes much easier. And, and talk a little bit more uh, about sort of compounding growth as it relates to productivity. Sure. So habits absolutely compound. If you're exercising, it's much easier to focus for the rest of the day. If you're focused for the rest of the day, it's much easier to not procrastinate. Um, if you don't procrastinate and get all your work done, it's much easier to go to bed at the right time. If you go to bed at the right time, it's easier to uh, exercise again the next morning. For me, the most important habit was probably daily exercise um, and, and just basic dietary stuff like cutting out sugar and, um, and anything super high glycemic. And what, what type of exercise do you do daily? I run without music, so um, I don't meditate, but I, I think that that's a better, better than meditation. Uh, why better than meditation? I personally have found meditation to be totally unhelpful, so I like to put that thought out, out, in the, out into the world because nobody is willing to say that. Say more. What do people understand? I guess there's some sort of magic that happens for people about sitting somewhere and not thinking at all, and I have never experienced that magic well, you know, for each zone, I don't want to denigrate what other people think works for them, but I like to put a counter signal out in the, into the world. Yeah, running uh, is definitely uh, a value add to your life. Um, ex aerobic exercise is good for a number of reasons. It actually helps you cognitively as well to be in good shape. Uh, I found that not using music or, or listening to podcasts or anything and just running cold with no input sort of centers you in the way that people say that meditation is supposed to. It's sort of interesting where people can sort of convince themselves that they're like quote unquote doing the work or being a good person by just meditating five, 10 minutes a day. And that sort of meditation is sort of idea in its ideal form, the most travel form. It like helps them people do the work of being better people, being more mindful, but sometimes people confuse the two and sort of think, Oh, I'm, I'm a good person. I, I meditate five, 10 minutes a day. I may be very passive aggressive or, or <laughs> get upset easily, but, uh, but I meditate. <laughs> I've seen people write about this before saying, you know, you don't need to, you don't need to do anything good for the world as long as you're centered and good with yourself. And I totally disagree. I think a lifetime should be measured in the impact and the good you create for other people. And if you do that with no mindfulness, um, I think you can die happy. Um, and if you're, you live a mindful life as a monk um, and never do anything for anyone else, uh, I think that's a fundamentally selfish life. And so I, what is the crux of the disagreement that you might have with, say, a Buddhist monk? What is it like the, the assumption that you, you disagree on? I think their life is selfish. Spending your life meditating to try to achieve nirvana for yourself uh, doesn't do anything for anyone else. And I think life is a multiplayer sport. 
I think we live in an incredible society. You look around, um, we have an incredible material and informational abundance. Um, and that is thanks to all the shoulders that we stand on top of for centuries of progress, people working very hard um, to invent things and to create new industries um, and to even just mainline workers working every day. If they're still working, that means they're providing more value than their wage costs. So they're providing value for the world. I think the average industrial worker or the average mechanic is doing more for the world than a Buddhist monk um, and should be celebrated. And, and what would the charitable interpretation uh, from the monk perspective be, like response to, 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 to your, your be? I think so. There was a time that I was very interested in Buddhism and I tried to meditate and I uh, tried to get into this um, just because of all of the good PR that Buddhism has. And I think they would say that by having peace with yourself, you can have peace with the universe and therefore make the world a better place. But I think Buddhism at its core is a pessimistic philosophy. It's pessimistic saying that being busy is therefore bad um, and being preoccupied uh, with the world is bad. Um, And I think people who are very busy um, means that they are doing things uh, for other people and and for the world and they're most likely creating value. Um, So I think that would be their pushback and then my pushback. And uh, and would you put stoicism in the same class as Buddhism or? Yeah. So I've read some stoic philosophy. There's a lot in there about withdrawing from the world, the importance of withdrawing from the world. Um, And and I think that would be in the same class as Buddhism. I I think people should not withdraw from the world. I think they should engage with the world um, and try their best to make the world a better place. There are things in Stoicism that I think are probably good for the world, um, such as, you know, you only have control over your own emotions. You only have control over your own reactions. And that's what you should focus on. And I think fully understanding that and integrating that understanding into your life um, can make people's lives much better. I think people spend a lot of time worrying about things that are outside of their control and that's fundamentally unproductive. So yes, I, yes and no. Right. And maybe maybe I, I don't have a sophisticated enough understanding of Buddhism. Maybe Buddhism is similar to Stoicism in that regard. Um, so I wouldn't want to say that anyone's beliefs are, are wrong necessarily, but my superficial understanding uh, would, would uh, support what I'm saying. It is interesting. Sometimes when, when you sort of critique such a large thing like Buddhism or, or a different kind of philosophy, they'll sort of take this like really pluralistic approach, which is like, no, no, no it encompasses that too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but if you sort of stand for everything, you don't really you know, stand for anything. If not Buddhism, if not Stoicism, which one, Michael? <laughs> or, or what else, what other belief system or... People underrate capitalism as a moral system. I, I think that so long as people aren't coerced, if, if they are doing things for other people and the transaction is, is free and open and free from coercion, that means they're creating value for other people. Um, so capitalism is sort of an emergent system um, that ensures people are creating value for everyone else um, around them. So obviously there are problems with capitalism. There are breakdowns in the system. I'm not some sort of bleeding heart libertarian that thinks that the government should not exist or anything like that. It is not given enough weight as a moral system in and of itself. Yeah, so I had Tyler Cowan on just uh, before you. uh, So we were definitely talking about that. And and one of the things he says is that, uh, you know, I was sort of pushing him, you know, people died with sort of, you know, uh, uh, whispering Stalin, you know, from their lips and were inspired by communism, socialism in a way that, capitalism hasn't captured the hearts and minds perhaps because it's hasn't been branded well, or perhaps because it's sort of non-intuitive, not how we relate to people on an individual level. Uh, how do you sort of 
react to that. And when, when I ask him, hey, what's the best way to promote capitalism? He says, uh, instead of, you know, promote it sort of head on, promote like Mormonism or other things that huh. directly <laughs> to lead to capitalism. So, do you think that a mythology that promoted economic growth or that explained it in sort of compelling YouTube videos or, or movies could ever really capture hearts and minds? Or do you have to get it through some other way like hip hop or something? Huh. Mormonism or I don't know. Yeah, let's see. How would I make pro-capitalism propaganda? Yeah, I think part of the problem is uh, the glorification of the past. You see movies from 100 years ago, um, and it seems so quaint and warm, you know, but in reality, they should show uh, people dying uh, (laughs) because of lack of access to basic transportation or sanitation or people living very boring lives uh, because the child can only have one toy in in his entire life, right? So I think realistic views of the past um, might be better. Um, You know, we have incredible access to transportation, medical care, all sorts of things, thanks only to economies of scale and to the rapid economic growth that we've had over the last couple couple hundred years. Um, So I think maybe movies set in the Middle Ages should actually show uh, people dying from like an infected tooth, um, <laughs> you know, or having no access to clean water. It is interesting. I mean, there's this uh, great Reddit subthread. I think it's like brands, like talking to kids or something like, or like, hello there, kids. And it's like uh, examples of brands on social media or brands sort of trying to, uh, brands trying to be cool. And sometimes people criticize that as quote unquote late stage capitalism. I don't, I don't know exactly what they mean, but how, how do you make sense of this, this sort of idea of like brands becoming people or us trying to anthropomorphize brands. I think that's almost the entire reason for branding in and of itself um, is to sort of fit these massive entities that have emerged because of the scale of our economies into the sort of paleolithic minds that we still have. So I think, yeah, maybe it is late stage capitalism, probably in a good way. Totally. I want to close on uh, going back to go back to Twitter and information diet. Can, can you walk me through an example of how something you read on Twitter sparks an original thought from you? Like when you say you have oh, original thoughts because of the, the content that you consume, what, what's an example of how that could play out? Right. So there's a tweet a long time ago from an account called uh, Amuse Chimp. He had this tweet that said, if the news is fake, imagine history. <laughs> Uh, right. And it's so short. And I, I think the fake news moral panic is definitely overblown, but there is some truth to it. Um, you, you sort of imagine that if, if 75% of what's written in newspapers is, is wrong or not quite accurate, then, you know, history, it must be 95%. So humans have this need for uh, clean narratives and we've sort of compressed history into clean narratives and much of it must be totally wrong. We've talked about Twitter, but do you do you use other mediums uh, a lot, like podcasts or or articles or, or books? Or how do you think about information diet outside of Twitter? Yeah, podcasts are good. Um, I think books are overrated because every smart kid was patted on the back for reading a book their entire lives, um, so they've built their identity around it. Um, so people overrate books for sure. My parents actually, before they got married, started a business together and then ran that business for like fifteen years. Uh, they got married a few years in. So uh, I've been sort of curious about that idea. I understand you, your your co-founder is your significant other. Is that accurate? 
Yep, yep. We're a, we're a married co-founding team. Yes. Uh, it works really well. Uh, talk about that. Is, is that something you'd recommend for others? Or, or talk about how you see that phenomenon why it's underrated. Yeah, I'd absolutely recommend it. It's very much underrated. Startups involve a fire hose of communication. If you imagine at a big company, most of the important decisions have already been made. Before Bottomless, I worked at Nike. Almost all of the important decisions at Nike have been made 20 years ago. Um, And now it's just executing on the vision that's already set in place and the brand that already exists. So there's very few decisions that need to be made outside of just the mundane, like what product vertical should we launch or kill? But with a startup, your decisions are much more broad and much more less fleshed out. Um, and so communication with your co-founder, I think, is very important. And the beauty of doing a startup with your significant other is, is if you consider communication as being, you know, you have two constraints. You have bandwidth and you have maybe availability. Communicating with your significant other is extremely high bandwidth because you know each other extremely well. And then it's very high availability or uptime, I guess you could say, um, because you spend a lot of time together. So with a typical co-founding team, you might spend nine to five or maybe more typical for a startup nine to eight or something together. But you can't talk on the weekends. You can't talk after hours very efficiently. But when you're doing a startup with your significant other, it's virtually 100% uptime, very high bandwidth. So I highly recommend it if you plan to pour your life into your startup. I highly do not recommend it if you want to treat your startup as a nine-to-five job. You know, it's interesting. Tyler Cowen gave me the feedback once that he's like, it's a bad idea to pursue it with, with your partner, a business, because the odds of you both having a great relationship of that same person being both a great significant other to you and a great business partner to you seem very small, uh, seem very low. And so why, why not? Like, I think the words he used were, and why don't you try to be doubles tennis champions or something too? Like, I think that's, I think that's wrong. Tyler Cohen's one of my favorite public intellectuals, but I can say why I think that's wrong. There's this idea, especially among economists, that you should diversify everything. And I think for a successful startup, you need an outsized outcome. So you're playing a low probability, high payoff game. And so diversification does not lend itself well um, to that because you can't diversify your company and you can't diversify your life. So I think instead of putting your eggs in multiple baskets, uh, you should put all of your eggs in one basket and try your fucking best (laughs) to not break the eggs. Thank you so much for coming to this podcast. For people who want to learn more, uh, we're not going to reveal the the Twitter account, uh, but uh, where can they learn more about uh, Bottomless and and, uh, what should they stay tuned for? Yeah, so I have a real name Twitter account now. It's M-I-C-J-M. Um, they can learn more about Bottomless if they're sick of, of buying their coffee over and over again at bottomless.com. So follow M-I-C-J-M or bottomless.com for more info. And yeah, thanks a lot for having me. This was fun. If you're an early stage entrepreneur, we'd love to hear from you please hit us up at villageglobal.vc slash network catalyst.